Well, good morning. Uh, I once heard it said that the, for a pastor, one of the best sounds is the sound of the church flipping through their Bibles. And I noticed a little bit of extra flipping as some of you <laughs> looked for the book of Obadiah. If you had to go to the table of contents, uh, you're in good company. 90% of us probably did that. The other 10%, my wife said, had the little tabs on the side. So you guys cheated. Uh, let's pray one more time this morning before we get started. Father in heaven, you are indeed a good God who cares about your people. You are a mighty God who deals with your enemies. So this morning, Lord, as we look at this short book of Obadiah, would you enlighten our hearts to know more of your glory? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, we're continuing our sermon series this morning through the Minor Prophets. Uh, the Minor Prophets are so named not because they're unimportant, but because they're short. And this morning, we are in the most minor of the Minor Prophets, the book of Obadiah. The Minor Prophets take up roughly about 5% of your Bibles, and the book of Obadiah could probably be fit into two pages or less. And so let me give you a brief introduction, because if you're like me, uh, when you came to know the Lord, uh, the book of Obadiah was one of those books that you kind of said, I'm going to get to that later, because it's a little confusing. It is one of the more difficult Old Testament books to uh, interpret for a couple reasons. Number one, if you, if you look down at your Bibles at the beginning of verse one, you'll see the vision of Obadiah. That's all we know about Obadiah, that it's the vision of Obadiah. We have no details about the writer other than his name. Now, if you do what I did when I uh, first read the book of Obadiah and you search for Obadiah in your you know, Bible app or what have you, you'll find that there are a dozen references to Obadiah in the Old Testament. The only problem is none of those dozen references are referencing the person that wrote this book of Obadiah. Obadiah is a fairly common name. Scholars have debated the exact context of when this book was written, what exactly it was written about, what order it should be put in. So you guys pray for me this morning. I'm going to take a good stab at it. And this book, unlike most Old Testament books, is focused on one particular foreign nation, namely the nation of Edom. And the Edomites, of whom the book of Obadiah's focus, were descendants of Esau. So if you uh, track back in your Bibles into the book of Genesis, uh, you will see that Esau and Jacob had uh, less than a cordial relationship as brothers. And throughout the 1,200 or so years in between that time and the time that the book of Obadiah was written, these two nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom, were in sporadic conflict and strife with one another. Uh, back in the early 2010s, you, some of you may remember the, the show came out, The Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, I think they're from West Virginia, which are my people, um, Maybe. Maybe I claim them sometimes. But imagine the Hatfield and McCoy stretched over 1,200 years. That's kind of what we've got in the relationship between Edom and Israel. Numbers 20 gives an account of the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt. They're on their way to Canaan, and they show up at the gates of Eden, Edom for passage. And the Edomites did not allow Israel to pass in to Canaan. 2 Samuel 8.13 recounts King David going against Edom and defeating nearly 18,000 Edomites and erecting garrisons in the nation. Needless to say, Thanksgiving dinner that year would have been a little awkward. 
And by 587, when the events referenced in this book occur, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, is on the verge of being wiped out by the Babylonians. And God's people, as we heard last week in the book of Amos, were not much to write home about at this point. God had delivered a word of judgment against Judah. And the one way that he would bring that judgment upon them was through the conquest of the Babylonians. If you're interested in this, the book of Ezekiel gives a more in-depth study on this. But it's in the context of this destruction, the brutal destruction of Judah, that we find the events happening in the book of Obadiah. So look with me, if you will. I'm going to do something a little uh, different this morning. We're going to start in the middle of the book, because what you're going to find here is that Edom is about to commit the most heinous act against God's people. Look down to verse 10. I'm going to read verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So picture the scene. Judah being besieged by Babylon. Babylon comes in and, and destroys everything. And not only are the Edomites not coming to the aid of God's people, but they're actively mocking and profiting off the plight of their kinsmen. The psalmist in Psalm 137 would, would write about this. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Edom is acting like the entourage of Babylon. Perhaps you've uh, witnessed in high school one of those fights that breaks out. And you know what happens after a fight breaks out, right? There's a circle of people around the fight. And what are they doing? Fight, 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 right? Instead of going and getting the person they should be getting. That's what Edom is doing. Edom, from their high and lofted position just to the southeast of Judah, is looking down on the Babylonian conquest and saying, fight, fight, fight. Then verse 13, we get another picture. The picture here is that the Edomites, not only did they stand back and encouraged the conquest, but they actively followed the Babylonians into Judah to pillage and make off with whatever possessions they could. Perhaps you've seen after a, a hurricane comes through and, and wipes out a town, looters coming in and, and picking off whatever items that might remain in the destruction. That's what Edom is doing here to Judah. And then in verse 14, the climax of the treachery. Picture this, the Babylonians entering in 
Israel fleeing for their lives, maybe taking some of the lesser-known paths and routes out of Judah, clutching what little they could, maybe clutching their children. And what do they find as they are about to exit their land? They find the Edomites waiting there to, to grasp hold of them and to take them and take them back to the Babylonians. And what we see here is a picture of this perpetual enmity between the Edomites and the Israelites. These are people who are allied against God's people. And what are they judged for? This entire prophecy is a prophecy of judgment against Edom. What are they judged for? Well, answer, they are judged for their actions taken towards God's people. And this brings us to an important point. For some of you, it may be odd to think that God might have enemies. Seems like a strange concept in an age where we want to say God is love, but God also has enemies, and those enemies are those who take action against God's people. Is this not the same theme we find in the conversion of the Apostle Paul? What does God say to Paul as he's walking down the road? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the point is that God takes it personally when other people are against his people. To oppose God's people is to oppose God. And that's good news for God's people to know that when they are mistreated, when they are reviled, God cares. Every slight that you take as a Christian, for every time you're maligned and slandered for being a Christian, God cares. When we see videos of Christians beheaded for their faith, God cares. When churches in nations across the world are bombed and destroyed, God cares. God cares about the mistreatment of his people. And that's what we're going to find in the Edomites. God is going to set his sights on the Edomites, his enemies, and he will not relent. Look down again to verse 1. What causes opposition to God? That's a question we should ask. What would it be for the Edomites... What would make them be opposed to God? Verse 1, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. And verse 3, I think, lays out the main crux of the issue. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwellings. One theologian has said that Edom has suffered from what should be called collective egotism. Obadiah exposes how a nation can ground their security on all types of things other than God. And by doing so, they engage in what Augustine called the mother of all vices, namely that of pride. Pride, as one author has put it, entails a denial of our finitude, creatureliness, and contingency. Pride becomes a deadly sin. It becomes an obstacle to salvation, for salvation requires what pride cannot allow, namely admission by the fallen creature of his non-superior standing before God. Pride removes from us our need of grace and faith. Pride reveals to us an absolute trust, not in God, but in self. 
And the Edomites, there's kind of three illustrations of the Edomites' pride. Let's take them in turn. The first we see again in verse 3. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If you do a quick Google search for Edom, you will see pictures of what many believe are the remains of the nation of Edom. And you'll see that there are these grand cities cut out of the cleft of the rock. Literally, fortresses of security, or at least so they thought. God says to them, no, 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 your pride has deceived you. You think because you are lifted high on earth, you will be safe. But God says, no, no, no height on earth can take you higher than God. Go to the peak of Mount Everest today and you will look up and still see the galaxies under God's command. We fool ourselves when we exalt ourselves. We mock God when we begin to believe that we are high and lifted up. We infuriate God when we look down on other humans as if they are insignificant and irrelevant. I think this morning it would behoove us to ask ourselves, in what ways do we construct circumstantial safety in our own lives? What ways do we build our own fortress of security? Do we put faith in the security of the equity we have in our homes or in our 401ks or in our bank accounts? What circumstances in our lives cause us to become puffed up with pride and look down on others? To ask those questions would be to ask the questions that the Edomites failed to ask. God will humble the proud. Those who raise themselves up will be brought low. Those who forget God and place their hope on the safety of their circumstances will be humbled. And that is one of Edom's great mistakes. But not only that, if the high security of Edom was not something they took pride in, look down to verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Edom said, look, if our safety can't be found just in our security as a high and lifted up nation that would be very difficult to attack because we sit lofty, we're going to have pride in our association with certain alliances that we have. Edom thought, even if our mountainous terrain doesn't protect us, surely our powerful alliances will. In other words, their relationships were going to be the thing that would protect them. And this is a word for us this morning. As sinners, we are always inclined to ally ourselves with someone other than God for our ultimate security. We're inclined to angle for power and security by aligning ourselves with those who are opposed to God. And in an attempt to protect ourselves, we forego God's truth and angle for the safety of life and reputation. And what the Edomites failed to remember, what we must fail to remember, is that any power that we put our trust in, save the power of Yahweh, will ultimately disappoint us. And sometimes, friends, God will use the very alliances that you make, the very things that you put your trust in, to destroy you. And this is what he does to Edom. And we have to remember this. 
Our hope is not in the Supreme Court. Our hope's not in the halls of Congress. Our hopes are not in the peace treaties or state departments or homeland security. No, our hope is in God. Now, don't get me wrong. I praise God for many of those things. We praise God for the ruling that came down this week. But if we put our ultimate hope in those things, they will swallow us and destroy us. We would do well to remember that. And in the case of supreme irony, it will be those exact alliances that Edom has boasted about that will bring them to the ground. The picture that you see here is that as the Babylonians come in to take Judah, and Edom stands encouraging them, guess who it will be in a few short years that will come and wipe Edom away? The very same Babylonians that they have been allied with. And not only that, on that day, on the day that the Babylonians come to destroy Edom, On the day that the Babylonians, as a measure of God's judgment against them, come against that nation, it'll be worse than if robbers had come in and pillaged. Now, you know, if you have a home and you have items in your home that you are afraid will get taken if someone robs you, what we know is if a robber comes into your house, what are they going to do? They're probably going to take your TVs, maybe look for your cash, your wallet, some other valuables, jewelry, that kind of thing. They're not going to go into your pantry and take all your food, right? They're not going to take your furniture, right? They're going to take a few short things they can get, and they're going to scram. Not for Edom. It's going to be worse for Edom than if robbers came in. Everything will be wiped away, all of it. The the illustration about the the grape gatherers. In the Old Testament times, if grape gatherers would gather grapes, they would leave some grapes behind for the poor that they might have food to eat. Not so for Edom. Nothing will remain. When God sets his sight of judgment against a nation, it's completely wiped out. And that's what we see in the Edomites. And not only that, so, so Edom had put, in their, put their pride in their circumstances, their safety. They'd put in their pride in their alliances. And now what will they put their pride in? Look at verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by the slaughter. Their safety as a nation because of their geographical advantages, their alliances, and now their wisdom and their might. And God says, all these things that you put your pride in, all your wisdom, all your might, won't be a match for God on the day of reckoning. And the same is true today. For sin, when God comes to make an ultimate reckoning for sin, no matter where you live, I don't care how much money you have, I don't care what alliances you have, I don't care who you know, I don't care how much you came to church, those things won't be the things that can save you. Edom's defenses were impregnable against everything except the omnipotent Yahweh. Edom's Edom's alliances were airtight except they forgot to ally themselves with one person, Yahweh. Edom's wisdom could guide them to safety against everyone except Yahweh. Edom Edom had oriented their communal life around a deadly cocktail of pride. And the scriptures are very clear. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, let this be a word to us. We must be careful to learn Edom's lesson. 
Let us remember, as we live in this age where pride has been redefined as a virtue rather than a vice, that all of our vices spring from this faulty belief that God is unnecessary and that we are sufficient without him. And I'll ask, how often, how often, friends, are our self-made kingdoms going to have to fall before we remember that they're only kingdoms of sand? And this is what prideful arrogance against God can do. I remember one time when uh, I was about probably 14 or 15 years old, uh, I was at a, a basketball game. I think I was at, watching my brother play basketball, and I came up to sit on the bleachers to watch the rest of my brother's basketball game. And I could tell my mother was annoyed with me. Okay, so you know what that's like, right? You know what it's like when mama's annoyed with you. And I was kind of like, what? what's wrong with her? And she looked at me and said, you know, I really wish you wouldn't walk around with your nose pointed in the sky. Right? In other words, I really wish you wouldn't be the most arrogant person in this room right now. And unfortunately, she was right, I think. But pride does that. It can cause us to start to, to hold our nose in the air, to look down on others. It was pride that caused the priest and the Levite to pass by and allow only the Samaritan to come to the aid of the beaten man. Pride it was that caused Adam and Eve to first take of the fruit and reject God and say, I don't need God anymore. I'll be God myself. You go to Isaiah 14. Pride it was that caused Lucifer's fall. And I'll exalt myself. Pride is a deadly vice. Let us be ever watchful against it. And we might think little of pride in our day. Pride's been celebrated, indulged in, glorified. And the irony's not lost on me that I, I preach this sermon on pride as the secular liturgical season of Pride Month comes to an end. We think little of pride because we think little of God. We think little of pride because it seems to us less destructive than other sins. But friends, this is another illusion. Augustine said, pride is the mother who is unable to be barren, giving birth to vice after vice after vice. Pride is a spiraling sin. Like Dante's Inferno, it leads us deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness. And the sins of Edom should serve as a lesson to all of us, the sons of Adam. Now, you might be asking now, okay, well, okay, Edom is really bad. I get it, right? They're, they're really bad. But what's God going to do about it? Right? Does God actually even care about what's happening to his people? Well, let's look and see what, what God will do about sin. God promises to humble the proud. And Obadiah gives us an insight into how God will go about this. Let's look down to verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there will be an escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. I want you to notice in verse 15, we may think that Obadiah is only talking to the nation of Edom. But what does it say in verse 15? For the day of the Lord is near upon who? 
upon all nations. Edom serves as a place marker for the nations. And there's a coming day when God will return the deeds of Edom on their own head. And there's a coming day where God will return the deeds of all the nations on their own head. And and he will do this on that coming day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Hostility to the Lord and hostility to the Lord's people will end in sure judgment. And this is a sure theme throughout the scriptures. And hopefully, you know, we've, we've been preaching through the book of Exodus. And this, this phrase, the house of Esau stubble, they will set fire and consume it. Maybe that tickles your ears. You've heard that before. Who did we hear that about? The Egyptians. The Egyptians, the pursuing Egyptian army will be like stubble. They will be consumed. The Edomites will be like stubble. They will be consumed. A fire that could perhaps be best summarized by reading Ezekiel 35. I tried to shorten this and only pick a few verses. We're going to read the entire chapter because this tells us what God's feeling is towards Edom. And from it, we can reflect on what God's feeling is towards all of his enemies. Ezekiel 35 says this, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. And say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity and at the time of their final punishment, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Sire a waste and a desolation. I will cut it off all who come and go, and I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your city shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will take possession of them. Although the Lord was there, therefore as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I judge you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, They're laid waste, they're given us to devour. And think about this as we think about the pride of Edom. And you magnified yourself against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. Thus says the Lord God, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Sire, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That's judgment. And this really happened. So this is not just some hypothetical story, right? You go to southwest Jordan right now, and you know what you won't find? Edomites. God really deals with his enemies. And just as God dealt with his enemies, the Edomites, so he will deal with that great enemy, Satan and sin. One commentator noted it this way. He said, Edom's destruction is but a prelude to the overflow of all powers who pit themselves against Yahweh and do not acknowledge his sovereignty. Now, I know for some of you, 
this is a really intense message, right? You're not used to thinking about God in these kind of categories. But if it's difficult for us to picture God responding this way, it's not because there's anything wrong with God, but it's because we've forgotten that God is passionate about his people. God is passionate about justice. To God, no act of evil done towards his people will go unpunished. To God, there is no belittling of sin, period. And this is why we're so passionate about declaring the good news of God's grace to all the nations. We're passionate about this because we know there's only two categories you can fall into. Friend of God or enemy of God. One of God's people, not one of God's people. And for God's enemies, a day of reckoning is coming. The freight train of God's judgment is coming against sin. However, God has told us that there is a way of escape. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn and consume them. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those in Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those in Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles Jerusalem who are in Seraphad shall possess the cities of Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Did you hear the refrain in Ezekiel? When he's coming to, to proclaim judgment against the Edomites, what, what are they going to know at that point? You shall know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The point of judgment is so that we will know that Yahweh is the Lord. And there is a way of escape. There is a way that you can become a friend of God. And this is why we send money to Montenegro and to Portugal. This is why we partner with church planning networks all across the country and all across the globe. This is why, Lord willing, we're going to send out Pastor Cameron, one of our best. We're going to send him out to start a new gospel work, Lord willing. Why? Because there are enemies of God who need to hear that they can become friends of God. There is a way of escape, safety in Mount Zion. The prophet Isaiah would say it this way, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord." What should Obadiah's message of judgment against the Edomites teach us? It should teach us that we should long to be friends of God rather than enemies of God. And there's a, there's a way we can do that. The book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Think of this. Just think of what we've heard about today. And think of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Think of that. You think it was bad for the Edomites? It was. But worse it will be for those who have heard of the Son of God, who have heard of the covenant of His blood by which He sanctified us, and who ignore it. Indeed, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He is the God who is exalted to the highest. He is the God to whom all nations of the earth have no compare. He is a God in whom all wisdom resides. And the good news, friends, is there's a sure way to not be his enemy. Because the book of Hebrews continues in verse 39. It says this, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We won't be destroyed. Why? Because we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith is antithetical to pride. Faith causes us to acknowledge that there is no righteousness in ourselves. Faith requires us to trust something, better yet, to trust someone that we can rely on. Faith brings us security that does not need mountainous regions or alliances or, or personal wisdom or personal might. Faith is what is required to be a friend of God. Pride is the reliance on things obtained and the conviction of our own superiority. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things unseen. Faith. Faith is what is required to not be an enemy of God. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord. The kingdom shall be the Lord. What will God do about his enemies? Will he destroy them like Edom? Yes. But will he also provide a way of escape? Yes. God has promised sure destruction for his enemies, but for his people, he promises restoration and an inheritance and a kingdom that will be the Lord. That's verses 19 through 21. As I stumble through the pronunciations of these locations, you might be thinking, what is all this about? Essentially, it's saying... Israel will be brought back, and their reach will reach even further than their reach when they were taken away. I have an inheritance that I'm going to bring Israel back into. And guess what? Those few short years later, as Edom is laid waste, you know who returns and obtains the land promised to them? Israel, because God has provided a way of escape. But Israel's restoration is, is but a picture of that great restoration. Because if you know anything about Israel, if you've read your Old Testament, it's one of those situations where you read and you're like, come on, guys, again, really? You do the same thing, over, God's going to judge you, then he restores you, and you say, I'll never do it again, and you do it again. And the cycle continues. See, God dealing with the Edomites was dealing with the enemies of his people, but there is another enemy that still needs to be dealt with, the enemy of sin. 
And the only way for that enemy to be dealt with is for the king to come and wage war against it. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. It is the kingdom of Christ that will be the ultimate end for the enemies of God's people. And it is this kingdom that Jesus inaugurated when he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's this kingdom that we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's this kingdom that the book of Revelation speaks of in chapter 11 when it says this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Enemies of God will once and for all be wiped out. And the good news is, friends, you don't have to remain an enemy of God. Christ has come. God will punish every sin. The sin will either be punished in judgment on that day when he comes, or it will be punished on the cross as Christ hung for the sins of his people. That is how we can become friends of God today. And even as we do so, we pray that God would hasten the day when that kingdom would come. Because as saviors who went up to Mount Esau revealed that the king, that kingdom would be the Lord's, so Christ came and said, no, 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 not just the mountain of Esau. The whole world is the kingdom of the Lord's. And one day he will come again to make his kingdom a reality. And we pray, hasten the day, Lord Jesus. Let us pray together.